Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and today we are going to talk about the wily gray partridge, which many of you know as the Hungarian partridge. It's an introduced game bird brought here by European settlers as far back as the 1700s. But its real history here in the United States is only about 120 years old. It is thought of as the quail of the north. They're a fast-flying and challenging bird to hit in the field. They make for a great hunt and even better eating at the table. My guest this week is going to be Tyler Webster. He is an expert Hungarian partridge hunter from North Dakota, and he runs the Birds, Buds, and Booze podcast. Let's get right to it. Welcome, Tyler. I am very glad to have you on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. It has been a long time coming. You and I have spoken before, and we have not yet hunted the wily Hungarian partridge, but that is going to be the topic for the day. Well, it's a good one. Uh, it's one of my favorite birds to hunt, and uh, even though we haven't got to do it yet, uh, I know it's on the agenda for both of us for next year, hopefully. This podcast, the whole season, the purpose of it is to really super geek out on whatever the given animal of the, the day is. In this case, it's it's the hun. And mm. I've asked around and looking Uh-oh. for, yeah, I've <laughs> asked around looking for people who like, oh, who's who's the who are the most insane Hungarian partridge hunters? And there are a couple guys in Canada, uh, but your name popped up over and over again as one of the most hun huntingest guys out there. And so that I figured it would be a really good opportunity to really geek out about the partridge, this particular weird non-native partridge that has been part of American game bird hunting history for several hundred years now. And you are where? So tell us where you are and what your background is and and how you got started hunting the Hungarian partridge. Sure. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you for very much for having me on. Um, I, I appreciate you also coming on my podcast here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was very kind of you. Um, I am talking to you from northwestern part of North Dakota. Um, I have been, um, I'm 35 years old. I've lived here my entire life. Um, I started hunting when I was eight years old. Uh, started carrying a gun when I was eight years old with my grandfather. Um, and back then, that would have been about 91 or so. It was we were at an all-time record high for Hungarian partridge in the area that I live in. And when I mean all-time record high, um, you could drive down the road in any corner of a wheat field that you stopped, the, that you drove past, there would be a covey of huns, every single one. Um, you'd go out and it was not uncommon to see or move you know, 15 to 20 coveys of huns a day uh, if a person was actually out there trying to, trying to actively hunt them. And then we kind of went through a little bit of a down spell in the 90s when I was kind of getting my feet underneath me and kind of figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then uh, uh, all of a sudden I got involved with pointing dogs in the mid 2000s and uh, found out that they that the hun behaves pretty well for for pointing dogs, but they're a real challenge. It takes a dog with a lot of manners. And then as the hun population came back, I started getting more and more away from pheasant hunting and other things and started getting more and more into hun hunting. And in the last four or five years, that's been pretty much my targeted species of choice. Um, they're an incredible little bird. They're startling when they get up. Um, they will absolutely scare the ever-loving crap out of you. Um, they will punish you. They will make you look like a genius one day. They will make you look like you've never held a shotgun in your life the next. Um, they're, they're just a fantastic, fantastic game bird. The way I have described Hungarian partridge, which is perdix perdix for the Latin inclined out there, 
is that it's the quail of the north. They're about 14 ounces is an average size bird in the feather. Males are a little bit bigger than the females, but not a whole lot. And they covey exactly like bob whites. Yeah. So it's it's like a big blast, and they and they and they explode, and you're like, ah! You either you either get on them or you don't. And the cool thing about the times that I have hunted them, and I've only hunted them in Montana, Mm -hmm. is that they will fly, and then you because it's big sky country, you can see pretty much where they're going to land, so you can walk after them. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, you can. Um, but they will also, uh, <laughs> so they have this, this habit of what, and one of the reasons that I love them as much as I do is because it seems like they're always flushing just a little out of range, just a little out of range, just a little out of range. And you, just like you said, I mean, up here, you can see forever. Um, and they, is, they have several tricks that they'll try to play on a guy. Um, you know, they'll, they'll try to get some terrain between you and themselves, but generally you can kind of get a, a pretty good idea of where they're going to go. And I myself have followed a covey through nine flushes, um, nine? And not, nine, and not got a shot at them. Um, and nine flushes, for those of you who have haven't hunted up here, that's about five miles. And generally, they're uh, um, they don't uh, they're not going to just keep on going in a straight line away from you. They have a a home territory that they're comfortable with. And I've heard it's about two hundred acres. It's kind of like you're there set to. I think that it, it it I think it varies based on on density population density. Um, they're they are you know and they'll be in their same areas year after year, but they have eventually you'll start seeing a pattern. So you can push them to a point. I've done it a, a number of times in my life where they're they just don't want to go anymore in one direction, and all of a sudden you'll be walking up and the birds flush way ahead of you. And then they make a big swing around you and head right, right back to where they started from, which is like, it's almost like they have like a home base. And, uh, you know, it's, it can be, it can be super frustrating. Um, but they're, they're, they're just an incredible game bird. And when you say the quail of the North, I want those of you who, who do hunt quail, um, whether it would be Mern's quail or actually a fairly decent uh, comparative as well because of the way that they flush and how tight they hold. And when they get up, they just like bob whites, they're like almost twice the size of a bob white, really close to it, it seems like anyways. And so when there's 18 of them and they all go up at once, think of 18 bob whites times two um, that all go up at once. And I've seen them make uh, complete idiots out of some of the best wing shots in the world just because they just can't focus and they're so rattled by the sound. And um, yeah, they're, they're just a really, really cool bird. Hey, I'd like to take a minute to thank the CC Filson company for sponsoring this podcast. Filson is the original Alaska outfitter. They started in 1897 outfitting miners for the gold rush and the Klondike. And ever since then, they have been committed to making the best equipment available. I know I've worn Filson for 20 some odd years, both in the field and just around town. I am committed to their Upland Game Gear. I think it's the best. It stands up to everything and it lasts forever. Be sure to check out Filson's Holiday Gift Guide at filson.com for all your hunter, angler, gatherer gift needs. They have awesome stuff not only for Upland, but for walking around town gear, travel stuff, as well as really good stuff for deer and duck hunting. So check them out at filson.com. Paradox Paradox is is native to Eurasia. It's mm-hmm. they, We call it the Hungarian partridge but because it's actually, a lot of the... 
sure. a lot of the, the the initial plants were from Hungary in there, in there but it's right. the gray partridge is its other name. Right. Yep. The European gray partridge. Yep. So uh, it's not a chucker. It's the, no. it's basically it's the chucker's pleasant cousin is the way I describe. <laughs> yeah. It, they well at least the ones in in my neighborhood are a lot more. Uh, a lot more accessible for the average person, we'll say. Um, uh, I, in fact, I'm going to be recording a podcast myself uh, with a, a fellow that chases chuckers, and he's 75 years old. And he's still getting up mountains chasing those birds. But for most people that think of chuckers, they're going to think of the the ones you shoot at a shooting preserve or a, a, a pen raised bird, and the, those are not what what they're what what we're talking about. But with Huns. They're a little bit more closely associated with agriculture, or at least they are around here. They, so it tends to be not as unforgiving of country as the chucker would generally like to live in. For sure. I mean, that's that's one of the beauties of hunting the, the Hungarian partridge is that you're in this wide, open, rolling, grassy area. You've got draws. You've got wheat fields. They seem to like hang out in any kind of combination of small grain fields, pastures and fallow areas. And, and they're, it's just, it's just a pleasant hunt. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, you could walk five, six, seven miles, but that's kind of or the 12 point. or 13. <laughs> yeah. But it's still, that's the point. It's not Absolutely. 13 miles at 10,000 feet chasing ptarmigan. Nope. It, it's a, it, it's a fairly, it, it, it feels, it feels very civilized. It's a, it's a very, uh, you know, like I do it with with the dogs, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can walk with another with another person, and you just kind of walk around on these big expanses. Um, whether it's, in fact, one of my best spots that I found this year is literally a half a section, so 320 acres or so, uh, a half mile by a mile wheat field, just a barren wheat field that was cut, and um, there was six coveys of birds in that particular field, but you just literally walk across it with a friend sitting there talking, uh, just like you and I are doing. And then all of a sudden you look up and a dog standing on point and that's when everybody starts getting a little bit twitchy. Um, you walk up there, you got your, everybody's walking up there a little bit like Elmer Fudd, you know, and, uh, all of a sudden this, this group of birds that doesn't seem like there's any cover there for them to hide in explode out of nowhere. And then there's, you know, usually four to six shots ensue, and most of the time, no birds fall. But um, it, it's a very, it's a very relaxing hunt, and um, the country that they live in is so beautiful. Um, they, they like old farmsteads. When you talked about uh, draws and, and wheat fields and stuff like that, you can find them in old farmsteads, um, edges of sloughs and 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 such. So you don't actually have to be, you're not going to be pushing through super thick cover like you will for pheasants. Um, you're not going to be gaining and losing 5,000 feet of elevation like you will for chucker, and you're not going to be running into rattlesnakes like you will for quail. <laughs> the one trick, though, is finding places that actually have hunts. And I have, over the last four or five years, now I haven't gone to your state, but mm-hmm. I have gone to several places where I thought there would be Hungarian partridge hunting, and there just wasn't. They're like, well, they're not here anymore. And so I looked up. And apparently they, much like rabbits, are extremely cyclical. Mm. They're like you were saying when you just started uh, our conversation a few minutes ago that when you were a kid, they just were on every corner. And then sometimes they're not. And right. I'm not entirely sure what causes that 
that the cycles. I know mm-hmm. that they do not like wet winter or wet springs. Right. They're a, they're an arid bird, and they they typically do very poorly if you have a bunch of rain in say April, March, April, May. Mm. Yeah. See, like up here where where I'm at, they are the last birds to nest and the last birds to hatch. Um. So our our hunt population is pretty much directly tied to if we have inclement weather, weather in late June, early July. That late, eh? Yeah, our our Hans don't have, like our peak pheasant hatch in North Dakota, according to the Game and Fish, is June fifteenth. Um, the way that you can so generally, if the pheasant hatch is June fifteenth, sharp tails are a week after that, and Hans are a week after that. So it'll be right at the end of June or the first part of July. Generally, that time of the year, or at least the the pattern has been over the last 15 years or whatever, uh, that's we get most of our rain in May and early June. So the later in June you get, you'll start getting those warmer days. But it's it's not even really so much the rain as it is if you get a really cold, like wet weather for a prolonged period of time, because of the a, a mom and pop uh, partridge they can have anywhere from 12 to 22 eggs or something like that and it's uh, so they have these giant clutches but they're like the size of a ping pong ball when they're born and they don't mm. they, they, you know they don't get their flight feathers for 14 days so it, they have to have warm weather or else they get hypothermic and die and the problem with that is is that huns won't renest. at least this is what i've been told from biologists who should know but there's no money going into Hungarian partridge research in this country, like none at all. Uh, so it, what they say may be right, it may be wrong, who knows, but um, they will not renest if a single chick survives. So out of the, you know, say probably 14 eggs would be an average clutch. If one survives and the other 13 die, then there's going to be a covey of three birds. So that's uh-huh. the difference between a good year and a bad year is if if they have a really uh, a, a pleasant, warm, dry temperatures end of June, early July. And it's really only about the first two weeks of July that it's really super important. Um, then you'll have the big cubbies kind of like we had this year. So now this year uh, I keep pretty I, I, I'm very protective of my cubbies. Um, I, I know exactly where they are. Um, it's funny. <laughs> I am the mountain quail here in California. Right. You know, and I've been hunting the same coveys for, there's one covey that I've been hunting for 15 years. I I just know it's there. It sits there every year. Uh, it's in this one particular area, you know, within, you know, pretty much like you said, within a couple hundred yards, you're going to find them generally. Um, they could be a little bit farther one year, but um, this year, my average covey was about 14 birds. Um, we've seen some coveys that were as big as 20 and we've seen, you know, a few of those sevens and eights. So our general rule of thumb with anybody that I hunt with is I ask them one favor, and that's if you see a small covey or when when you're walking up to a dog on point, you don't know how many birds are there. Um, If it's if it's a small covey, say, you know, seven to ten birds, um, shoot the covey rise and then leave them be. Um, Don't don't go chasing them. Don't you know, don't go and watch where they go and try to get up there and get on them again. Just shoot them on the covey rise, leave them alone. Um, if it's a big covey where it's 18, 20 birds, you know, if we knock, say there's me and one other guy and we knock three birds down out of the covey rise, we're going to be watching that covey to see where it goes. And we're going to keep on chasing it and try to try to get a couple more out of it. But then we only hunt the coveys one time per year. After that, we won't, I won't take anybody back into those fields. We'll just leave them be. 
I, I just recorded a podcast with a quail scientist. And this guy, a guy named Dwayne Elmore of mm-hmm. Oklahoma State University. I'm going down there to hunt in a couple months. <laughs> there you go. He notes that at least quail, now partridges could be different, quail coveys are very dynamic in the sense that the covey is not the covey is not the covey. So the covey composition is fluid in the sense that if you mm-hmm. shot out that seven birds, the four that are remaining will join another covey. Sure. And any given covey in any given spot can, you know, it's not always the same 14 birds, in other words. So right. I don't know if that occurs with the partridge. And it, it, it actually, it, it would be something that would be good to know because then, you know, whether or not your style of hunting huns mm. is actually beneficial or does it not matter? Sure. And, and it probably doesn't. Um, the, the reason that I do it, and I think that it probably has a little bit to do with the time of the year as well. Uh, so early in the year, uh, our season here in North Dakota opens up. It's always the second Saturday in September. So, you know, it's the 8th, the 12th, the 14th, whatever it is. When that opening day comes, they're absolutely still in their true family units. Um, uh. you'll, you'll see, you'll see a very discernible difference between the adults flushing and the little ones flushing. And sometimes if it was cold in early July, um, and they had a failed nesting, I mean, I've seen, young birds that can hardly fly September 14th that you don't shoot. I, I just leave them be because I, I don't have any desire to shoot, you know, little itty bitty ones that can't fly. Cause there's no meat on them anyways. Um, veal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, so later in the year, uh, as it gets colder up here, um, for those of you who haven't been to North Dakota, yes, the rumors are true. It does get pretty damn cold here. No. And no, really? I know like today was actually beautiful. It was 45 degrees today, but um, that's not, that's probably pretty normal, but it's going to get cold. Uh, you, you can bet on that. Um, but as, as it gets colder and some of those birds do get um, whether it's killed by hawks or owls or hunters or hit on a road or whatever it may be, um, they will f- start moving into bigger and bigger and bigger groups. So if there's if there's several coveys in an area and there's a bunch of little five, six, seven, eight bird coveys, all of a sudden they'll move all together and there's going to be one big covey of 30 birds. Um, ah, that, do- okay. that does start happening later in the year is, uh, with huns. And we start calling them super coveys. We've seen coveys as big as 40 birds before. And when you do move a covey like that, it's very, very interesting because they'll, if you move them more than once, they'll actually split back up into their original family groups and go different directions. It's really bizarre, but uh, they'll, so all of a sudden, the first time they'll go up, it'll be 30, 40 birds, and then 20 will go here and 20 will go here. And then when you hit, when you hit one of those other groups, then all of a sudden they split up into like little groups of five, six, seven, and eight. And they kind of go back to their old, um, it's almost like they have like a recall point, almost like quail do. And that seems to happen late October, early November, depending on the, on the weather, uh, they'll start moving up into the, or grouping up into those bigger groups. But yeah, I, I would assume that they probably have to, and I know that assumptions are, are bad, but I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. So, you know, what the hell do I care? Um, that, uh, they would have to, the Covey dynamics would have to be fluid just for, uh, genetic diversity, I would, right. I would assume, you know, uh, I've often wondered in a covey, what the, the, like say the, this time of the year in mid November, what the, what the, 
diversity of, ge- of genetics would be if they would all if there'd be you know, cousins and second cousins or if it would still be mostly brothers and sisters you know i mean like who knows exactly what that would be but it would be it would be interesting to know well the churn is interesting uh, a study i read says the the churn rate is 78 percent per year which is that means 78 percent of them don't make it much past a year right and a typical hun is two years old, uh, you know, typical that's maximum lifespan. And then uh, they haven't recorded a hun older than four. So they mm-hmm. don't live very long. Yeah, it's I, that would be pretty, pretty consistent with most game birds. I, I remember one of my favorite statistics I ever read is that the average lifespan of a rooster pheasant is seven months. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah. So it's like, well, you know, if if, if you're going to be reincarnated as something, that would not be high on my list of being reincarnated. No, you want to be yes. waterfowl. I mean, <laughs> yeah, water, like a, the average a age of a snow goose is like seven. Right, right. Also, with, with Hans they're pretty aware that they're at the bottom of the food chain. I mean, everything wants to eat them just like quail and everything else. So they're being hunted literally morning to dark and well, well from sunrise to sunset and well past all 24 hours a day for their whole lives, whether it would be from, uh, I'm sure that coyotes will take some, but I don't think they're a major threat. It's mostly avian predators, owls, hawks, falcons. Um, you know, but there's everything wants to eat them because they're delicious. Hey, I'd like to take a moment to say that Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts, hats, and other gear. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to check out the new line of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook Apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. So I did a little research on on why we have them. Mm -hmm. So the earliest recorded introduction of a Hungarian partridge was in the 1790s in New Jersey of all places. Hmm. And I mean, obviously New Jersey in 1790, looked a lot different than it does now, but right. I'm from there and there are places in the South of that state where I could see, I could see that you could, you could have Hans there and it didn't take uh, for probably the reason because they're, they do get cold, but they have very, very wet, wet, wet springs. And, mm-hmm. and the gray partridge is, primarily like a step bird it's a it's a it, it's native to very arid wide open spots so they tried it in virginia in 1889 and then that failed and they tried it a whole bunch of other places east of the east of the mississippi like michigan in, in 1910 oregon or uh in 1900 and that actually took yeah uh, because they put them in eastern oregon which mm-hmm. is like exactly like a step and then 1905 in Iowa, Minnesota in 1913 in the the southwestern part of that state. So you started to get these good introductions starting at around 1893. They think they introduced something on the order of 200,000 birds as the kind of the seed crop. And then now you can hunt them in 12 states. Uh, and, and some Canadian provinces. Right. Too. The three the three Plains provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Right. The only place I know of where the entire state holds hunts is yours, is North yep. Dakota. Yeah. 
Um, we uh, and you can pretty much bisect it, the state of North Dakota in in half, really, going from it, north to south. Um, well, you can, come on, you know, you know, as a Dakotan, you know that the Dakotas are, were were improperly divided. It oh, should not sure. be North and South Dakota. It should be East and West Dakota. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause there, there is, uh, there's a, a huge difference between Eastern North Dakota, Western North Dakota, Eastern South Dakota and, and Western South Dakota. Um, and it pretty much is the, the Missouri river is the divider. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can pretty much follow the Missouri river where it comes up through Bismarck and goes straight North through mine all the way to Canada. And if you go East, it's flat, um, agriculture, prairie pothole if you go to the west though and it does it's not very far to the west either um you start getting into a little bit more rolling country and uh obviously down in the southwest part you start getting into the badlands as well um but it becomes a little bit there's still plenty of agriculture in the west don't get me wrong but there's a lot of cattle production as well there's it's nice cattle country there's um pastures and um pieces of prairie that's still virgin never been broken prairie um, I so actually it, got a chance to hunt uh, sharp-tailed grouse on a piece of virgin prairie in North Dakota once. It was oh. it was amazing. Uh, you come up here next year, and, and we'll. But I love chasing sharp-tails too. So uh, they're they're uh, sharp-tails are my second favorite bird, and it's 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 one and one B uh, for <laughs> me. Um, they're they're a fantastic bird. But right here by where I live, there's lots of of virgin prairie, and it's a uh, it, well where i'm at is the it's either the first or the second depending on the year as far as uh, harvest of sharp tail grouse and always first or second for the harvest of hungarian partridge in the state wow you're a lucky guy i live i live in the right spot yep what was your first can you remember the first time you hunted huns and and what lit the fire for you well i can in fact i could it, i i know exactly where i shot my first one um, it was that first season that I was hunting. I was eight years, eight years old. I was carrying a single shot 410 and, uh, it was just a quarter mile North of the, of the family homestead. Um, so it's, uh, it's still in the family. Um, my best friend, Mike lives there and farms for my uncle and, and my uh, cousin now, uh, they'd be the fourth generation farming that same piece of land. And, uh, so we were, is when when I was growing up, we we hunted birds, but we did it um, kind of like you do. Um, <laughs> we we were uh, bushwhackers, I guess would be a good way to put it. Um, we didn't have dogs. We uh, walked them up, um, but we also uh, spent a lot of time in the fall trapping fox and coyote. And this particular day, uh, I had missed God knows how many birds by you know by this time because this is October. But we saw this cub. We were driving down this prairie trail, going to check traps, actually, and we moved a covey of huns off of the off the prairie trail, and they flew out to a rock pile about 100 yards away. And so my grandpa, God, he was probably he was probably only in his early 60s then. Um, very good shot. Uh, he shot a, a beautiful Browning Sweet 16 semi-automatic that I still have. Um, and he he put the truck in park, and he said, Tyler, grab your gun. And I said, okay. And we walked out there and this covey got up 10 yards, maybe. Um, and I was shooting 410 with eight shot and he was shooting a 16 gauge with sixes. And uh, we had to do a, 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 it's the right word, necropsy, I guess, on the, <laughs> on the birds afterwards to figure out if I'd hit it or not. And sure enough, uh, one of the ones that had fallen was one that had an eight shot in it. Um, there was also, I think we got three. 
and he only shot twice. So he was pretty sure I got one. I was less sure than he was. I just knew that I'd shot once. <laughs> and uh, uh, but later on that evening, when we when we were cleaning the birds, we uh, we did find did find uh, little little eight shot pellets in one of them. And um, that covey is still there. They're uh, they're wow. I, yeah they're they're always uh, right there within you know, they're descendants of that same covey that I was hunting then. And he probably hunted them before that, you know, and we, we still go out there and chase them every once in a while. Yeah. I wonder about that in my own home turf in the, the Sierra Nevada, California with a mountain quail. I wonder if, if some of those coveys are ancient, you know, having been there right. decades and even a hundred years or more, you know, that occupy the same space. Sure. First of all, I was very flattered when you when you said that you talked to a lot of people and they said that I was one of the most hung uh, hun um, crazy people uh, around. But I, I I got my my fire from from that. But um, I learned everything that I know about Huns from a man by the name of Ben O. Williams from Montana. Uh, he's got a fantastic book called Huns and Hun Hunting, and he's got a story in there about what he calls the Keystone Cubby. And in in that book, he talks about hunting the same covey of Huns in the same farmstead for 50 years. He said they're always in the same farmstead. He hunts. He goes there every year. Uh, He said that, you know, he he knows after if they if they move ahead of him and his dogs, he doesn't even shoot them hardly anymore. Ben's in his 90s, I think, uh, still out there. I think he still has like 12 dogs. Uh, He's just an insane man. Um, But he said that. uh, Having hunted them for as long as he has, uh, if they when when he moves them, uh, he can almost tell where they're going to go before they do. Like uh, he just he knows them that well. He said that every year you move them, they go to here and then you move them from there and they go to here. And then about the fourth time, you're going to find them right back where you found them the first time. You know, so like it's it's built into that into their genetics, I suppose, from the escape routes from from ancestors past, I, I would imagine. But. Uh, you know, like, like we said earlier, who knows exactly what the what the makeup of all that is, but it it it's kind of romantic to think that it would be descendants of that same covey that he's been hunting for 50 years. I guess I, I kind of like to believe that. It's pretty amazing. I mean, that's I don't you know you hear about goose flocks and they're all family groups and and a, a big giant flock is a bunch of different family groups and so you've got you definitely do have very long lived social birds. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it it's a slightly different deal in the sense that you you have long-lived social birds, whereas Hungarian partridge are short-lived social birds. So there must be just a very you know it sounds like their lives are very <laughs> are stressed. They're, they're stressy sure. birds. They right. I've, when I've hunted them, they've always seemed super stressy because of all the things that are trying to get them. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine like the the mom and dad teaching their chicks like, okay, you go here. If anything comes right. there, you go there. And if anything right. goes there, you go there. <laughs> and if we get split up, we meet back here. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, and I, I like to believe that. And I mean, I know that there is at least some truth to that because, uh, you know, like I said, there's, there's copies that I've been hunting myself for, for 15 plus years. And there are discernible patterns and uh, in, in the in where they're going to head to. You know, they, it's like they have an, a, a predetermined escape route um, that, their parents probably showed them and their parents showed them and their parents showed them. But once you, once you hunt them enough and you start figuring out their patterns, it can be really fun because uh, when you're taking people out there who don't know these birds, for example, I was walking uh, not very long ago with a, with a guy who had never hunted the spot, never hunted, never actually hunted hunts before. And I was like, all right, so here's the deal. We're going to walk up over to, uh, up this, up this little draw 
And about a half mile up there on the left-hand side, there's a bush. And underneath that bush is going to be a covey of huns. And he's like, what? <laughs> it's like, no, just believe me. You know, like when, when you get up there, be ready because there's going to be huns there. And I said, watch your dog and just be ready. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, you're just, you're full of it. You know, and I was like, okay, well, you know, you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but I know that I'm going to be walking that direction. And he's like, okay, sure enough, we got up there. Dog went on point. Covey of Huns gets up. He's not paying any attention. Uh, they fly away. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're right. And I was like, I've been hunting these birds for a long time. I know where they're going to be. Uh, and for the last five years, uh, the first time I hunt this, this particular draw every year, they're always in this bush. Uh, and, and they can really make you look almost like, like a, like a savant of some sort. And it's like, Hmm. Yeah. Uh, how, how can you know that? And it's like, well, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I know these particular birds. So if somebody is going to start hunting Hungarian partridges, if I live in, you know, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Iowa, Idaho, Nevada, wherever, wherever there's a huntable population, and I say, okay, I just listened to this podcast. I need to get started doing this. What would you tell someone who wants to get started pursuing these birds? Well, I'd tell them several things. Um, I'd tell them to buy really good boots um, because you're going to be walking a lot. Um, and when I mean a lot, an average day of hunt hunting uh, in early October, which is my favorite time to chase them, is going to be between 9 and 11 miles. Uh, even in good years, like like this was a particularly good year. In fact, one of my statistically best years I've ever had. I keep track on a in a journal. You're going to be, there's a lot of distance between coveys. Um, you know, like this year, if you put on a 10-mile day, uh, you're going to move close to a covey a mile on average. But just because you move them doesn't mean you're going to get on them. Um, you're eventually they're going to evade you. You're going to get, they're going to lose you. They're going to go behind a hill and disappear. Like they just seem to do. They just evaporate sometimes. It's fascinating. So you need a good, a really good pair of boots. You need a big running dog. That is absolutely key. Um, I, my dogs tip like I, I have a little, uh, year and a half old English setter, uh, in that's laying right here next to me right now. She pointed to Cubby Hunt. She was 400 yards away from me when she went on point. Wow. Uh, you need a dog that can cover some some ground because they're they're it's if you want to think about a scent cone for a Cubby Hunt, it's probably 20 feet wide by 30 yards long, right? And we're in country that is enormous. And if you don't have a dog that can get out there and actually range like that, you're you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage uh, to the point to where you almost kind of have to get lucky to find them. And then uh, I would recommend, well, listening to this podcast, hopefully some people will will pick some uh, some tips. Uh, I, I haven't chased tons a ton in other states, so I guess I can't I, I can speak as sort of an authority on the birds that are in North Dakota. Um, I do know a little bit about. I mean, what I'm saying is going to be correct in a general term, um, but they're they're a bird that likes edges. They um, they thrive right where the um, the prairie and the agriculture meet, or I find lots of them in the middle of a big wide open uh, wheat fields or canola fields like I was talking about earlier, but they're still going to find an edge. It's going to be the edge of a slough or a fence row or um, some sort of uh, terrain change or 
uh, a draw that goes through there. Those are going to be spots that are going to be like priority spots. You will occasionally just find them out in the middle of no, out in the middle of uh, pasture or out in the middle of a wheat field, but they're generally going to be fairly close to some sort of an edge. So it's a lot of gamers of, that are like that. Right, right. So you can kind of eliminate a little bit of the country uh, before you even start. You know, you look at a uh, say there's a uh, a decent draw with some grass and and bushes and stuff like that that run through an agricultural field. That's that's going to be a pretty high priority spot for me. Uh, that's going to be a spot that I'm going to try to try to work on, at least push through there and see if the dogs uh, get interested at all. And then I'm also while I'm out there, I'm looking for different sign. When you get to those bushes, uh, like I was referring to in those draws, if you look underneath them and you see a bunch of scratching or places where birds have dusted, there's kind of like a little depression, loose dirt there. Or just like with quail, you'll find a, well, I mean, it's basically, it's a pile of poop is what it is. But I mean, it's going to be very concentrated in a small area. And that's that's one of their, that's going to be one of their recall sites or one of the spots where the covey has spent time and they just, they literally will just sit in one spot. And, and uh, so if you start seeing that, you know, there's birds in the country, then you're going to, then you're really going to start trying to explore it a little bit further and seeing, uh, seeing if you can, if you can locate them. This sounds a lot like Mern's quail hunting. It really is. It's very similar. And that's why I've, I've really in the last uh, couple of years, I've become, uh, I've become really, really infatuated with Mern's quails because they're like the Hungarian partridge of the South. Um, they act very similar. But yeah, I mean, that if you can do those those things, uh, that that's a start. Um, the other thing that a person needs to do is the Internet's a wonderful tool. The Game and Fish in whatever state you're looking in, they're going to have some information on there on, on where the, like I said, I mean, like, in North Dakota, I know that they break it down with harvest reports based on counties. You're going to want to spend a little bit of time and dig into the numbers a little bit and see which counties are there are uh, the most birds being harvested in, because obviously there's going to be the more birds in those in those counties. I would go out on a limb and say that there's probably at any given time in, in North Dakota, probably between one and five people that are actively out hunting huns and the one is definitely me um <laughs> there's they're, they're not a bird that, that many people focus on they're a bird that a lot of people shoot as almost as bycatch they will uh they'll be pheasant hunting or sharp tail hunting and they're kind of a bird of opportunity more for most people so when you it's start a little looking, weird when you consider it because right. we're going to get into to the cooking and eating part at some sure. point but I, you know, of every game bird that lives in North Dakota, I think with a possible exception of the prairie chicken, which I don't think you can hunt anymore in North Dakota, no. the hun's the best eating bird out there. I agree. I 100% agree. But there people, there's just a lack of, of uh, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's going to offend some people, and I, I, I hope that nobody gets real pissed off. Because they're uh, fat and lazy and they won't that's walk. That's exactly it. I'm fat. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not lazy. And uh, if you don't, they're a bird that, they're a boot leather bird. You need to put on miles to find them. And then a lot of people, they'll, they'll find them one time and they won't pay attention to the, to the like, they won't try to replicate that situation. So if I'm, if I'm walking across a, a field and I start seeing a particular type of weed and uh, all of a sudden a covey erupts, I'm looking at what that weed is. 
Um, I'm trying to, you know, if, I'll guarantee you that if I happen to see another patch of that, I'm going to go and look. There's patterns that that people just don't pay any attention to. So they'll be walking, and all of a sudden a covey goes up when they're on their way to a cattail slew to go shoot pheasants or whatever, and they'll shoot them, and then they won't pay any attention to, you know, where they found them at. And so, um, but yeah, it really does come down to the fact that a lot of people nowadays are really lazy. And you're going to... You're not going to have one of those days where you can't, like, like you can in here in North Dakota, where you're going to see 500 pheasants in a day. You're not going to see 500 hunts in a day. I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care how many birds there are in the state. You just don't have the time. And like, there's not enough hours in the day to walk far enough to see 500 hunts. Like if you can see a hundred in a day, that is a fantastic day. Um, and people just don't really have a lot of time for that. If they're on the east side of the river, they need to go watch either the Vikings or the Packers. And if they're on mm-hmm. the west side of the river, they got to go see their Broncos. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I'm on the west side of the, the river, and I'm going to be watching the Vikings any, regardless. And uh, the Broncos, who cares? <laughs> uh, there's quite a number of western Dakotans who, uh, who follow the Bronx. Yeah, well, they how'd last week go for them? They were down, they were up twenty to nothing, and the Vikings still ended up beating them. <laughs> Was kind of hilarious. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about dogs. Yeah. So I don't hunt with a dog. That's because I travel so much. I feel it would be unkind to the dog if you sure. know for me to, to actually have one. Well, and the other thing is I hunt so many different kinds of birds that yeah. I'm not entirely sure if I got a dog, what kind of dog I would get. And I mean, ultimately if I do end up getting one, it will be a dog that hunts quail well, because that's where mm-hmm. I live. Right. But so you mentioned already a wide ranging dog. Yep. So beyond that, so you need you need to have a dog with manners is really is, is going to be important because it doesn't do any good for you to have a dog that'll run 400 yards away from you if it'll if it won't hold point right uh, it, if you don't it's just going to become a rodeo you're going to be mad you're going to be yelling at your dog it's going to be really unpleasant for everybody that you're hunting with um, going to be unpleasant for you it's going to be unpleasant for the dog so their huns are a bird that does not take pressure well. Um, a dog has to be able to point them from distance. So you need a dog that, uh, like my dogs have, they're, they, they grow up chasing these birds. So their first instinct is if they smell something, they're going to stop. Whether it's there right at that second or if it's a little bit older scent and those birds have moved, that's kind of, that's secondary for me and for them. Because uh, they understand that if they, they smell it, they're not real sure if it's there or not. So they're probably, you know, they're, but they're, they err on the side of caution a little bit. What um, breed do you run? Well, I've got two different breeds. Um, I got, I got two English setters. Uh, Rusty is my oldest. He's six. Uh, CJ is my youngest. She's, uh, she won't be two until the first of February, I think. And then I have a German short hair as well. That's uh, just about two and a half. So, okay. So you've got a wide ranging dog that has manners. Yep. And, um, uh, I assume your you, pointers are pretty much the, the, the you got to go with a pointer, not. You, yeah. Well, I, I don't think that they, if, if they do make a wide ranging flushing dog, it probably isn't a good thing. <laughs> I have seen them. I have too. And in it's fact, not a good thing. <laughs> in fact, uh, funny story. So I'm in Colorado and we're chasing Colombian sharptails mm-hmm. and a friend of a friend puts us on this spot where he thinks that there's going to be Colombian sharptails. I'm like, all right, cool. So he's on the, he and his new dog 
let's just call the dog dipshit. Um, so dipshit and this guy are on the left and it's a young dog and, and he's like, Oh yeah, you know, dipshit's a real energetic dog. And so we're on the right with, with our dogs. And so we're working this hill and we're going up and all of a sudden dipshit just decides that he wants to go for a run. He Mm -hmm. goes tearing off into this field that's right in front of us maybe 200 yards and like 60 Colombian sharp tail grouse get up and fly yeah. away. Never mm-hmm. to be seen again. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, when sharp tails get up, you don't find them again. They're gone. I was like, livid. <laughs> Cause <laughs> yeah, this was and, dawn, dude. This was like a, like a 30 minutes after dawn and we did not get our sharp tails until the sun was going down. We walked right. all day long. Yeah. So is, I do it a little, a little bit different than people do with my dogs. Um, I only put one of my dogs down at a time um, because that way I can pay attention to them. Um, I can watch their body language. I can um, I can make a correction uh, if I need. And by correction, I, I mean with a collar. Uh, my dogs know uh, very few commands. Um, th- th- there's several that are important. Woe is very important, especially when you're hunting wild birds like Huns or Sharptails. Um, I need them to stop if, if I tell them to stop and they, and they're, and they do know that command and they also need to know here, they need to know how to come back, whether, no matter what it's for, uh, those are the two most important commands that I teach a dog. And that's really mostly it. Um, other than that, uh, I, I kind of let my dogs, I let the birds teach the dogs more than me. Um, they're going to learn more from, uh, from the birds, at least a good, smart, well-bred dog is than what a trainer can teach them. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I think that, um, birds make a bird dog. It's not, it's not a dog that's, you know, that's trainable. They have to learn from the birds themselves. Uh, they have to learn what the birds will take, what they won't take. And I got a pretty interesting, uh, anecdote about my young short hair that I got right now. I got him almost a year ago, actually, uh, as a giveaway from a friend of mine. Uh, my friend's a breeder uh, in Minot, uh, just to the east of me a little ways. And he sold this puppy as an eight-week-old dog to a person who got into a car wreck and couldn't hunt no more. And so the guy gave him back to my my friend, the breeder, and with the hopes of you know just finding him a place to, to go where he could hunt. Well, my friend George has seven dogs already, and he's like, I just don't have time for another one. He said, "Do you?" He said, I know you hunt more than anybody I know. Would you take him? And I said, yeah, I'll give him a shot. You know, this dog was 14 months old. I don't think he knew his name. I, I, I know for sure he'd never been outside. Wow. And so I worked with him all last November, December, January, and I shot plenty of birds over him in North Dakota, Kansas, Arizona, everything from Mern's quail, pheasants, huns, some sharp tails, but not many. Um, and then this summer, he went to a trainer over in, uh, over in Montana, a friend of mine named Todd Laner, who put a really good foundation on him because he was kind of, he was behind the curve. Uh, he was almost two years old. He, um, you know, he'd had no experience at all in the first year of his life. So I wanted to get him kind of caught up to where the rest of my dogs were. And when he came back in August up here, uh, we have what we call a training season where you can go out and you can run on wild birds. So it's going to be young sharp tails and huns and pheasants. Um, can't carry a gun, obviously. Uh, it's just it's basically like practice for the dogs. 
Uh, and the I, birds. And the birds, too. Yeah, it, it really is a little bit of that. So as what we do is uh, as soon as you move a bird, uh, you get any kind of dog work on it, you get get the hell out of the field. Basically, it's like my scouting season. And it, it's it's very, very valuable for both for getting the dogs into shape, um, getting myself into somewhat less of a round shape, um, <laughs> uh, get, getting getting my legs a little bit warmed up. But the what the the bird when you're not paying attention to shooting anything, it you can really pay attention just to the dog, and you can make the corrections at the appropriate time. And this the short hair came back from the trainer. His name's Bo, um, the dog, not the trainer. The to- the dog uh, the trainer's name is Todd. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bo just he was struggling a little bit he wanted to take one more step he'd smell him he'd stop for a second he'd want to take a step he'd take a step and the bird would go and so he was just and you could see every time he'd start he'd start kind of moving it back just a little bit and then he'd stand a little bit longer and stand a little bit longer and it came all the way down to opening day um opening day this year was the 14th of september and he still wasn't doing it right it just seemed like he just couldn't make himself it was almost like he didn't believe his nose and opening day this year was like 85 degrees. And Oof. so we hunted a little bit in the morning. Yeah. And so with my three dogs, I have a, a rotation that's set in stone. I never vary from my rotation. I hunt my, my dog Rusty first, CJ second, Bo third. The rotation stays the same. So if, if CJ finishes one day, Bo gets the first hunt the next. It's just, it's the only fair way to do it in my mind. And so Bo was the last dog to go. Uh, we had to wait until about 5:30, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had one spot that I wanted to go and and chase Huns in. Um, we'd been chasing Sharptails during the morning, and this dog literally hadn't hadn't done anything right during the training season. Like I mean, he he found birds, but he flushed them. I mean, whether it was within range or not, it's inconsequential to me. I mean, he 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 wasn't he hadn't put it all together yet. And so we're walking across this field towards this little draw that's kind of runs through this ag field. And it's got a, the draw's got a nice brush in it. And this copy of Huns kind of flushed really wild for whatever reason. I, I don't know if they were just going back to cover after they were done feeding or if they saw us or heard us or whatever it was. Usually opening day, they don't do that. But anyways, they went into this spot just past this big cottonwood tree. And I watched the short hair. He was kind of working, 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 and he got, he's probably 200 yards ahead of me, and all of a sudden he locks up. And I had some friends up from Michigan that were up here to hunt. I mean, they were hunting sharp tails, but they wanted to shoot some hunts, and I was like, oh, God, this dog's going to screw this up, you know. And uh, there I watched this young dog. He slammed on point, and he never moved a muscle. I mean, not a single muscle. And we're walking up and two deer get up in front of him, take off running. And I was like, was he really pointing deer? I was like, I, we saw those Huns go in there. There's no way that he stood through those two deer running. I, I just knew that that dog wouldn't do that, you know. And so he stood there and then the other guy's dog got in front of him and went on point and Bo never moved. And then we walked like 20 yards past him and he never moved. And the covey of Huns went up and we shot five out of the covey and he went and retrieved all the birds. Wow. And like he just it it was like a game time moment where he's like, I know what I have to do. I'm going to stand here. I'm not going to move. If the birds go, they go. But I'm not taking one more step. I and was going to since- ask you that. I was going to ask you because a lot of times, especially with chuckers, you'll get a dog that will go on point yep. and then the birds will run away. And so yep. you'll get up to the dog and then the dog will have to like reestablish a point because the right. birds just ran 100 yards. Mm-hmm. Do Huns yeah. do the same thing? 
Huns will move a little bit. Um, a long ways for Huns to move is probably 50 yards. Their defense mechanism is not running like pheasants or chuckers. Uh, their defense mechanism is going up in a massive ball and in the confusion getting away. That that is their that that's their number one defense mechanism is that. Um, they will move a little bit, but it's not going to be very far. So if you see where they go down at and you get up there, they're if if they didn't fl- reflush and fly away, they're going to be in that area within like really really close. I mean, 30 yards is a really long ways for them to run, really. Gotcha. So as far as a shotgun is concerned, you pretty much want to shoot a 10 gauge with number nines, right? Pretty much. Yep. Three and a half inch <laughs> nine shot. Yeah, that'd be the best. Yeah. Uh, the cloud open cylinder, open choke. Open, <laughs> you know? Fully open uh, choke. Uh, I shoot. Uh, I shoot a semi-automatic 20 gauge. I just like. I've never liked double guns, and I know there's a lot of people out there that uh will shame me, but you know, screw them. <laughs> uh, I, I like. I, I've always shot semi-automatics well, and I I like them to carry. Um, so I shoot a semi-automatic 20 gauge, and I I move on my shot size through the year. So for starters, opening weekend, I'm shooting seven and a half low base, a good low base shell, and I'm shooting improved cylinder out of for a choke. Um, as the season goes on and the birds get a little bit, little touch more wild and they start getting a little bit more plumage and denser feathers and they start feathering up for the cold weather, um, I start moving to sixes. Um, and I'll go from uh, shooting seven and a halfs and improved cylinder to sixes and a modified. Um, I've never shoot anything tighter than a modified. I think that, you know, full choke is, you know, waterfall choke. Uh, I'm not going to chase. Uh, if, if I can't shoot them with a modified, then I don't need to be shooting at them. But they will take a little bit more punishment than, say, even a sharp tail will. Sharp tails have. Yeah, they have a, a way of like if you hit them with a pellet in the toe, they'll just like lay over and die, and we're, we're, or wait for you to come up and kill them. You Rough know? grouse do uh, that too. It's weird. yeah, yeah. Uh, Huns are a little bit more like pheasants in that respect, where they take a little bit of punishment to bring them down, and then when they do get down, if they're not dead, they're not going to sit there and wait for you to come and find them. They're gone. They will. Um, they, run. They, okay. they they'll run when they're wounded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you need to. You need to get up there as fast as you possibly can and, and get a dog there if you if you don't think it's dead. The other thing that, that happens occasionally on the covey rise is you'll shoot multiple birds and then you'll kind of lose track of where they are or how many birds come down because there's so much confusion. And everybody's like, oh, I got two, I got two, I got two. And there's only like four birds that went down because everybody shot at the same two birds. Ah, the um, Alpacino at the end of Scarface thing. Yeah, yeah. And it does happen. So I carry these little, um, they're pieces of orange flag with a clip on them. And, and when I walk up, I put that orange flag with a clip on the first spot that I find the first bird or where I think that first bird went down at just to give me a, a place of reference. And then I start working out from there. But uh, yeah, shotguns, 20 gauge modified or improved cylinder. Um, you never really have to shoot anything bigger than sixes. A, a good ounce of shot out of a 20 gauge is pretty good medicine for Huns. I would not have guessed that you would have necessarily needed to go down to sixes. Uh, but I, I found that that was very similar too, where, you know, if you shoot doves, you're shooting mm-hmm. eights and sevens. Mm-hmm. But if you shoot pigeons, you need fives and sixes because sure. a, a pigeon is a much, much meaner, stouter, tougher bird than a dove is. And it's sure. 
sounds like the hun is kind of like the uh the the armored quail because quail go down pretty easy too yeah yeah they do and yeah they're i think that they just get a little bit more densely feathered since the, the, they live in a little bit a touch colder climate you know as it makes see, sense i mean they can yeah. snow nest you know right, they're, they're, absolutely bob whites and pheasants can't snow nest but these guys can snow they're, they're the only introduced bird that can snow nest Right. Yeah. And you'll see them uh, January, February, you'll be driving around and you'll look out in the field and uh, they'll just be a, literally a, a basketball sized flock of Huns where there's like 15 of them. And they're Google what uh, what snow nesting is. If you haven't seen it, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they'll actually rotate like they'll, the ones in the middle will get out to the outside edges. And oh. the ones, yeah, it's really it's just cool like the penguins on the TV show. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, but, uh, they they do take some punishment. And the other reason I, I, I shoot sixes, um, I usually start shooting sixes about the first of October and shoot them pretty much through the rest of the fall. But once October gets here, we're not, I'm not just hunting huns. I'm, I will also likely find sharp tails on the walk. I'll also likely find pheasants on the same walk. So when I'm out there, a six, a, like, and I shoot, I'm a little bit of a, of a shell snob these days. Uh, I shoot Prairie Storm uh, sixes exclusively uh, from October 1st on. I think that they they put more birds on the ground and they're they're where you where they hit the ground compared to a wounded bird. It, but whatever kind of premium shell you shoot, it does make a difference. But yeah, I um, shoot Prairie Storm a lot too. I like it. It I mean it 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 kills them and you, the number of birds that are dead where they fell is way greater than they are with the cheaper crappy shells. Uh so I, shells are like the cheapest part of a hunting trip, <laughs> you know. It's like you're you're not going to Argentina and shooting you know, cases and cases and cases of Prairie Storm at doves, but uh if you're going to go on a trip to North Dakota, bring like four boxes of shells and just splurge and spend the extra like $10 a box, you know, it's it'll it'll be worth it. I tell you um, what, I just uh, I was just on a, a sea duck hunt, and a oh, yeah. buddy of mine brought uh, these these boss shells from Michigan, yeah. and they were yeah. they were two and three quarter high base, like super high base number fives in bismuth. Mm-hmm. That was money on these yeah. birds. And yeah, I shot I shot a couple of them this this fall. One of my friends from down in uh, Wyoming, uh, Wes Larrabee, was shooting shooting boss shells and actually it was the opening day of pheasant season this year and we were hunting in a blizzard <laughs> huh. we, we took a, it was weird it was a very abnormal uh october it was very wet but we took off right from my house we didn't we didn't drive anywhere and there was i think there were six of us uh and we just made it like a four mile loop right around my farm here and I didn't bring enough shells because there was a lot of birds. Wow. Uh, so we, uh, I, I ran out of my prairie storm and I had to borrow some of those boss 20 gauge shells from him. Cause he was the only one, other one shooting 20 gauge. And, uh, this rooster got up out of this bush at like 50 yards and I just stoned him with those boss shells. And I was like, wow, <laughs> these are decent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a, I was a believer. I mean, I whacked a bluebill at 50 yards you know, as a kind of an open field tackle and, and like, okay, all right. Yeah. You and I might need to start talking about, uh, start talking to boss about a sponsorship deal or something. Yeah. Some free shells. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what other but, uh, gear do you, you know, I, I was just wearing blue jeans, boots and, uh, I mean, I wear like that little Filson web vest cause I'm usually hunting, uh, warm weather. yeah, I'm usually hunting in the warm weather. So other than that, like you don't need brush pants to, I mean, no, I've never, you really don't. No, um, yeah, you're, if you're, if you're hunting in a spot where you need 
like chaps or brush pants, you're probably hunting in the wrong spot for huns. Uh, it's probably too thick and too nasty. Um, so I, when I was talking about the opening weekend this year in September and that group of guys that was up here, there was a, the guy, the group of guys was actually Brent Pike from Pike gear. And he brought me up a pair of his new, uh, Pike gear, Kiowa hunting pants are super lightweight. Um, they're very, better than Dickies. I, oh, gee, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I used to go through, I, I used to buy those, uh, Dickies or cheap, uh, like Shields outfitters or Cabela's pants or whatever. And they're just, they're tight or well, like they're tight in the thighs they are uncomfortable. And like, they always ripped always every single time. Like I'd go through like five pairs a year because in this part of the world, we cross a lot of barbed wire fences. And when you're fat and you can't get over them very easily, you end up snagging the crotch on them and tearing the crotch out. Um, Gotta get nimble, man. I know, right? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm nimble enough to walk nine, twelve to fourteen miles a day, but that's gosh, not nimble. You know. That just that's just belligerent. <laughs> that's that's just me being stubborn. <laughs> is exactly what that is, yeah. Um, but uh, these these new Pike Gear pants, I actually say that they're like it's almost like wearing a pair of Upland yoga pants. <laughs> they're they're super comfortable and they're uh, they're very flexible and they dry really quick. So I recommend them, or at least take a look at them. Anyways, um, I'm not sponsored by him or anything else i just really like his shit <laughs> um yeah. but uh, uh so like i mentioned a really good pair of boots um there's a million different boot companies out there but you need yeah. something that's lightweight the best time of the year to hunt huns in my opinion uh is right around the first of october so it's not it shouldn't be super super hot um but you're going to want a really good pair of lightweight boots um, and I wear the uh, Q5 Centerfire vest the Dan Priest makes out of Arizona. Uh, it, they they really market it as a uh, bird hunter's day pack, really is what it is. And I carry it because I can carry a lot of water. Up here, we do have quite a bit of water around. It's mostly safe um, for dogs to drink. We do have we do have some concerns about blue algae some years, so you need to be a little bit careful. But even in October, when it's usually the first week of October, I suppose the average temperature is probably about 60, um, 65 maybe. But it's really quite comfortable to walk in. But that's when you're walking miles and miles and miles like that, um, for every one mile I walk, I figure that my dogs probably put on 5 to 10. So if I'm going to put on 10 miles a day, they're probably going to go close to 70, 100, you know, at least 50 at least. So you need to be able to carry enough water to keep them hydrated so they don't get heat stroke and, and you get yourself into some trouble. So that's really important is to have a vest so you can carry enough water in. As far as other gear goes, you really don't need a ton. Um, yeah, I mean, it's know, mostly just, like snacks, ammo, and, you know, and a hat. Right, and then beer for the night. Right. <laughs> well, beer stays in the truck and like the like it depends on the season, right? So if it's right, right right in September, you want like some like hams or like a Coors Light or something. Yeah, Coors Light. Yeah, something then, something nice and light. And then as soon as it gets colder, you move into the better beers, and then you know finally or scotch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the December hunt. Yeah, right, right. So speaking of scotch and things to drink. Yes, sir. How do you eat your Hungarian partridge? Well, you can make them a million different ways, and pretty much any way that you're going to prepare them is going to be good. I am not uh, a world-renowned wild game chef, as some people are. Um, I don't even play one on TV or on or on the radio. Um, <laughs> but so, like, I I save everything off the hunts that I possibly can. The gizzards are fantastic. I always have a bag of gizzards um, floating around somewhere. Um, well, how do you cook say, them? 
uh, the gizzards, uh, just bread them and fry and deep fry them. They're fan- like you can cook. They're fantastic. Um, so North Country. Yeah, the first time I, know, I ever right? saw that, apparently they do it in the South too. But the first time I ever saw that, I was in Shoto, uh, Montana, and I was with my friend Tim, and we were deer hunting. And this mm-hmm. is the night before. We had just pretty much almost died because uh, <laughs> I was driving my – I used to have a Toyota Tacoma. And and so it's a blizzard, and I'm driving up over an overpass, and there's a dually coming down the overpass as I'm going up it. And I thought, you know, I should slow down a little bit. So I just go dink on the on the brakes, and the, mm-hmm. the Tacoma goes broadside to the dually. Oh. I can see the sweat on that guy's forehead oh, as I go Lord. right in front of the dually. We go over the overpass. And I remember saying to my friend Tim, "This is it." Yeah. <laughs> He's like, "Ah!" And it's like that scene from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> like, and uh, and but I managed to steer the truck between the fence posts and go through the barbed wire and go boom, 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 and we'd land to stop in a disc field. Coffee's everywhere, and and I look at him and he looks at me and then we we listen to the truck and we get out of the truck and then and it seems okay. And, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And and then we're like I, I guess we're okay. And then so we we got back in the truck, got out of the field because it was four wheel drive, thank God. And then went right to the bar because like we are not gonna hunt deer right now. This is that was a sign. So the, we got of course a couple of Budweisers when we got in there. And then the first thing we saw on the menu was fried gizzards and red beer. Yep. Like wow, we are not in not in kansas anymore (laughs) (laughs) but you probably could find that in kansas too but (laughs) i bet you could actually Uh, but yeah like deep fried gizzards are fantastic uh and and hearts you can i mean same thing with i I don't think you can mess up hearts or gizzards to be real honest um there's a lot of people that don't save them and it's it's really kind of a shame uh people don't know how to clean gizzards which are uh really kind of a nice little treasure inside that little bird Uh, and, and i save them out of sharp tails i save them out of pheasants and I say not every bird because yeah. I mean here's here's a case in point a snow goose right mm-hmm. pull the gizzard out of a snow goose and hold it in one hand yeah, now hold now hold a hen teal right hold a hen teal in the other hand they're the mm-hmm. same weight yeah really I've I've never pulled the the gizzards out of a goose uh, I, I I don't I don't hunt a ton of upland or a ton of waterfowl I'm I'm more chasing upland um but yeah I I, I believe it do you pick your birds or do you skin them all. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of skinning. So, and I, Huns would actually be, and I do, in fact, I have three of them out in the garage right now that I'm aging a little bit. I should try it on them. Um, I bet they have pretty nice fat on them actually. Um, a lot of times they're, they're pretty plump little birds and I'm, I bet their skin's really good. I've never, I've never done it before. So one of my favorite things to do with them is when, once you get the breasts out, I, 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 I take all my legs and I put them in a bag and I, I got my, I, I got my, my, my leg bag out in the freezer. I just keep on adding to it over the year. I do and that. Then the, yeah. Um, but with the breasts, um, one of my favorite things to do is just marinate them in a, in like a lemon pepper marinade for, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. And in fact, I'll, I'll actually put them on, on a really hot grill and just grill them on each side for literally like a minute and then cut and slice them up, uh, decently thin and put them on top of a salad, almost like a, like a chicken salad with some apples and cashews and walnuts and black olives and everything else. That's really good. Um, but you can really do pretty much anything with, with Huns that, that you'd want to do with, with chicken or uh, pheasant or whatever. I mean, wh- whether it's, whether it's sandwiches or, I mean, God, there's so many recipes. Uh, I mean, I, I put them in a crock pot occasionally and, and shred them up and make barbecued sandwiches out of them. That's fantastic. Should I tell you my story about crock potted pheasant? 
Sure. I'm all ears. So this was not in your Dakota. This was in South Dakota. Okay. Um, the, we were at a, a media hunt and these very, very nice people uh, wanted to do like a special pheasant meal for the end of this trip. And we're like, oh, yeah, cool. So what they ended up doing was throwing a bunch of skinned pheasants in a crock pot with cream of mushroom soup until they dissolved. And so (laughs) basically we were served the whole pheasant partially melted in a brown stuff. It looked almost exactly like the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark where their faces are <laughs> melting. Like, and so we, we dubbed that pheasant apocalypse. Nice. And nice. please don't ever do that with any bird ever. <laughs> no, I, I love my crock pot. In fact, right now I got, I got two deer roasts and potatoes and carrots in a crock pot run right, right behind me. Much but, better uh, use. Yeah. So let me tell you about plucking, plucking huns. So I know a bit about working with huns from the ones that I've, I've gotten from Montana. So, you know, readers or listeners of the readers of Hunter Angler Gardener Cook or listeners to this this podcast will know that the trick with all upland birds is to let them sit whole and in the feathers for three days. Yep. You can do two, but the worst time to pick an upland bird is when everybody wants to pick an upland bird, which is to right. say the night after the hunt or the morning after the hunt. The feathers stick like glue mm-hmm. in that period. And even I uh, have a hard time picking them and I'm very good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the 48 to 72 hours, and you can let them go even a little bit more if it's cool. Yeah. And obviously you live in a cool place. The feathers were lax and they, they will come out easier. The trick is just, it's all finesse. Everything about plucking an upland bird is finesse. Mm-hmm. You can actually manhandle a duck and the skin is so thick that you'll be okay. I believe you it. can't manhandle anything upland, and especially the smaller gallinaceous chicken-like birds like a hun or a quail mm-hmm. or a chucker. Um, so they have two different kinds of feathers. There's the little teeny under feathers, and then there's the display feathers that make them look pretty. Mm-hmm. So all of those feathers that make them look pretty, and, and typically it's on the, the left and right edge of the breast – Mm-hmm. The uh, then it's the flank feathers. Like imagine, you know, if if, a, if you were a bird, it would be like where your jeans pockets are. Mm-hmm. So those are those are places where it's going to rip. The side of the breast is where it's going to rip, and then the neck is where it's going to rip because the neck has um like if you if you if you grit your teeth like that, mm-hmm. you, and your you know the kind of the veins or the the tendons stick out on your neck. Well, the bird has the exact same thing. And uh, where the tendons stick out when you grit your teeth is the same structure that a, uh, a Hungarian partridge or really any gallinaceous bird is going to have. That's going to be the feathers that will rip. So in between the the high points are the, the darker, easier feathers. So the way that you pick any bird is it's it, there's a lot of zen to it. You have to be calm. You have to pay attention. <laughs> you have to – you can't rush it. You can make it go quickly, but a lot of this is is being nimble with with your fingers, and a lot of times there's you're picking one feather at a time. But you you can go pick 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 pick, but it's still one or two feathers at a time. The biggest mistake everybody makes is to grab four or five feathers and and try to pluck, and then you're just going to ruin it at that mm-hmm. point. So, yeah. e- and always work with an ungutted bird because if you have a gutted bird, 
Now, the exception is a wild turkey because of thermal inertia, but that's another story. But for these small birds, they they don't stay warm that much, and they, they're going to be fine, especially right. if they're in the refrigerator. They, the, the surface tension of the skin, and you use your off finger a lot of times to keep surface tension on the skin to pick that bird. Um, it you Once you get it, you can – I mean just look, follow my Instagram feed. I mean I, I will take a picture of more or less every plucked bird I take to show people that it can be done. Mm-hmm. And once you get the hang of it, you're it's basically you're welcome. Like you're gonna you're gonna talk to me in a year and be like, oh my god, I thought I loved Hungarian partridge and now <laughs> I really love Hungarian partridge. Right. Because right. The, the difference between them is this. So, have you ever had a rough grouse with the skin on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Funky. It's it's funky and fantastic and amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it tastes nutty almost. Yeah, it's like it's if you take the skin off, it's it's like yeah, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Same deal with a pheasant, like a four, three or four, five day old pheasant that's been plucked and, and cooked is amazing. Mm-hmm. A fresh pheasant's a boring chicken. Yeah, uh, and also fresh pheasants. It, it, I, I age all my birds, and I've I've been doing it uh, for several years for many reasons, but um, part of it's because there's a little bit of me that's kind of lazy when I get done hunting. I really want to clean birds. It's a but good lazy. I, it really is. But uh, so I got a, I got an aging table in my garage. Uh, this time of the year, my, my garage stays about 40 degrees. And uh, I have nine roosters and three huns in there right now that have been aging for about four days. And tomorrow I'm going to clean them. Uh, but the the difference that you'll notice in just in the toughness and the, the ten, well, I guess it'd be the tenderness of the meat uh, by aging them seems to it, it, it's night and day different. If you if you clean them the day that you shoot them compared to four days later. It's a totally different piece of meat. It really is. It's dramatic. I mean, you, mm-hmm. so one way that you can tell, and I'll I'll put, I'll put a picture of this up in the show notes of this of this episode is, you could put a fresh picked pheasant. Pheasant's probably your best example because everybody has access to them. Right. Uh, a fresh picked pheasant, and the legs are going to stick up in the air. A four day or five day or six day old pheasant picked, the legs are going to rest like you would see on a chicken in the supermarket. Mm. it's 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 the everything is relaxed and right. you're still not gonna you know i mean with a pheasant you're still gonna have to deal with the tendons and the legs because they're running birds right. cool thing about huns like we said so before much. they right. don't run so much right. the thighs so specifically they, on huns are fantastic oh my god of course they are i mean it's just it's so that the partridge recipe so if you're looking for inspiration i mean obviously hungry you know because mm. they're, they're right. from hungry they're from Hungary. So, right. but look for really any European partridge recipes. So the English have them, the Spanish have them, although the Spanish recipes are really, they're dealing with chuckers, but they're interchangeable mm. in the kitchen. There are slight differences in flavor between chuckers and huns, but they're mostly on the, on the basis of diet. Mm. There is no reason you couldn't use a chucker recipe or really a quail recipe mm. with, for a Hungarian partridge. They're, they're within three or four ounces of each other, no matter what, what kind of bird you're taking. I, I'm starting to experiment a little bit more with cooking. And when I was, when I was growing up, um, <laughs> you know, like pretty much everybody from this part of the world, uh, all the, all the wild game was always cooked well done. Um, it was usually put in some sort of gravy or <laughs> something like, it's like, Oh God, nowadays I can't even like my, my grandma still likes to make uh, 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 like a country gravy with birds in it and put it over. And it's like, I can't, I can't do that anymore. You know, um, there's, it, I'm going to defend your grandma actually, yeah. you like know, like fine. 
like a like a squirrel gravy, like an old school oh, yeah. like squirrel gravy. Whether sure. you know, it's, I mean, there's a place for that. I mean, oh, 100% artfully done, you know, slow cooked pulled meat with a broth made from that animal mm-hmm. turned into an amazing gravy, all put over you know grits or you know up in your part of the world mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Or, or even just served with bread, that's mm-hmm. damn good. But oh, yeah. everybody who is listening to this has had a really horrendous <laughs> version of that. <laughs> sure, sure. And I mean, and, I mean, my grandma's cooking is great, but um, there are a lot better better uses of of a lot of these birds. Now, I mean, if you want to do that with pheasants, go, I mean, by all means, Pheas- pheasants to me are are just they're they're kind of like how what's they're kind of like a like the foul version of walleye. <laughs> like, it, yes, it's fantastic, but it's going to taste exactly like whatever you season it with. Like it's, it's all like, there's, I, I don't, I don't have, I, I don't think there's any real taste to pheasant that, you know, it tastes a lot like, 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 like you said, like a boring chicken. Um, like when you get into the darker meats, like Hans aren't dark, dark meat, but they're, they're somewhere in the middle. Um, they're not white meat like a, like a pheasant. They're not dark meat like a sharp tail. But there's so much so much better uses of of the that kind of meat than putting it in a gravy. Um, you can like cook it medium rare and just and literally just eat it like a like a like a piece of meat. I mean, it, it tastes fine. It, it it's great. Um, you can you can t- do any kind of like a stir fry or whatever with it. Like there's so many different things that you can do with it without having to cook it for hours in the oven and gravy. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, the, one of the cool things about these birds is that they don't live very long. So right. that does give you the opportunity to treat them uh, much like a cottontail in a sense, mm-hmm. like, you know, Hungarian partridge and chuckers and quail and cottontails are really some of the only wild game that you can you can chicken fry. Mm. Like, and I don't know, I don't care who you are. You know, fried chicken is amazing if it's if it's done yes, right. And, and really good fried partridge, it's to die for. Yeah, you know, and when uh, when our mutual friend John Odell was up here earlier this year, uh, he got pretty preoccupied with picking a bunch of choke cherries, and it got me thinking about trying As to make some sort of a yeah, uh, you got me really uh, excited about making some sort of like a. a cho- I'll wait till you come up next year and you can you can you can teach me the the, the ways. But uh, making some sort of like a, a choke cherry sauce to put over top of the the Huns, I think would be a pretty nice pairing. I think. Oh, I'll walk you through it right now. Um, so Sean Sherman, uh, he's known as the sous chef. Okay. Uh, he I, I actually interviewed him in season one of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so he is he's from the uh, Glala Sioux Reservation, but he's a great chef. And I met him in Montana when I was on book tour in 2011 for Hunt, Gather, Cook, my first cookbook. Mm -hmm. And one of the dishes that he did, he had a choke cherry sauce and it's super easy. So, you know, as you know, choke cherries have a big pit in them. Mm -hmm. So you need like a food mill or or some way to separate the, the, the flesh from the pits. I do it in a food mill. So. What you do is you take your choke cherries and you put them in a pot and you just barely cover them with water. So you almost okay. don't cover them with water, just but, but you need a little bit of extra water in there. Bring it to a boil, turn off the heat, let it come back to room temperature. Run that through a food mill and then that'll loosen all the meat off the pit. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get all of the good stuff in the in the bowl underneath the food mill. 
And then there, from there, you can do any number of things. If you want a super clear sauce, like if you want to get chefy with it, then you run it through a, uh, a, a fine mesh strainer and da, da da da. But if you don't, one cool thing is to just add sugar to taste because it can be super sour. Mm-hmm. Um, and my advice, if you're going to make a sauce for a Hungarian partridge or any other bird, is you add a little bit of sugar and salt. Mm. So you make it kind of salty, savory. Mm-hmm. And you have to go little bit by little bit, and you know you're only you are gonna know when it's right. right. And then buzz that in a blender hard, mm. and it will it will it will stay emulsified for your meal. And if you wanted to make it so that it would set up, so that you could put it in a jar or a bowl in the refrigerator, add maybe a tiny little bit of xanthan gum. And mm. it sounds like a weird ingredient, but it's a very it's become very common in gluten free cooking. So mm-hmm. chances are, if you've got a health food store or a Whole Foods or really even any big grocery store now, because mm-hmm. of the whole gluten free thing, you'll find it in that section. And it's called xanthan gum. And just like a half teaspoon will will hold that sauce completely together for hmm. weeks, weeks and weeks. And then you can use it as you need it and it will hold up even if you reheat it. Mm-hmm. So that's a. That's basically it's choke cherries, water, a little salt and sugar, and then you're good. Yeah. Now, if you want to add one extra bit, what I would do is I would add chili to it too. To add a little sure. Bit. Well, I got I since I I take a road trip every year down to Arizona, I do have a little bit of hatch chili powder in the cupboard. There you um, go. Something like that would probably be pretty good in there as well. Um, but like when I'm out when I'm out sharp tail hunting or or hunt hunting, if I walk past a choke cherry bush, I like to just eat choke cherries right off the tree. I mean, yeah. Like I, they're really good. Uh, a lot of people think they're kind of bitter or a little bit sour, but I I've, I've always liked the taste of them. You know and, what else you have out there? Are rose hips everywhere? I, everywhere. It, well, especially any place that that's going to be good cover for sharp tails is going to be loaded with rose hips. I uh, uh, I designed a rose hip um, glaze for roast sharp tail because of that. Mm. Yeah, that'd be. I I, I, and I don't. I'm just starting to experiment a little bit more, uh, and seeing the wild fruits that we do have up here. We we don't have a ton. We don't have like blueberries and huckleberries and stuff like that, that like they have in Montana. But there is a lot of choke cherry trees, and we have piles of rose hips. Um, and rose hips are uh, they're they're kind of a. If I tell everybody that if you're walking around, you start seeing rose hips where you're walking, you're going to find sharp tails. They love rose hips. Uh, and the Huns will eat them too. So yeah. it, it, pairing that with something that, you know, it's almost like the, they just complement each other because that's, you know, that's, they're, they're there for each other. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So we're running out of time, but I want to, I want you to leave us with, and you may have to think about this for a second. What makes Huns magical for you? What, why, other than the fact that you live near them, what mm-hmm. makes them so special? You know, there's a lot of things that that really have that that they have such a special place in my heart because I I connect them with my childhood. When I was growing up, that is what me and my grandfather like. Those were the birds that we wanted to to, to chase. Um, and it was it was a little bit because there were just so many of them at that time. And then we went through a like several years where there were just none. I mean, it, like if you've seen a covey over the course of um, you know a weekend, you do, you wouldn't even shoot at them because there were just so few birds around. You just wanted them to come back. And now that they're plentiful again, the the things that I appreciate about them now are have changed a little bit from from what they were back then. 
they they live in just some of the most scenic, like beautiful rolling agriculture where it meets the prairie. But the the real draw for me is just the is the covey rise. Uh, the covey rise is the thing that keeps me coming back. It it will never get old. Um, the 20 birds exploding in front of a bird dog that's stacked up on point. I got like mental pictures in my brain on a hundred different points that, that uh, with dogs that aren't even here anymore uh, and the birds taking to the air and most of the time, not, not any of them falling. That's what keeps me coming back time after time. It's, it's definitely the covey rise. It's an amazing bird. I mean, I have only hunted them a couple of times and I need to, to fix that. And mm-hmm. Uh, I think I found the guy to do it with. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm really looking forward to next fall. It's going to be, I've been telling everybody that next year may be the year that we talk about for the next 20. We had an unbelievably wet uh, September and October up here this year and wet to the point where there was a lot of crops that were ruined. So there's so much food out there for these birds that are there. And there's going to be coveys of huns that never get hunted this year that never get seen by hunters because they're they're in standing crop and you can't access it. So next year, I, I predict I'm going to be bold and I'm going to predict now that if we get a decent, decently warm June and July, that next year is going to be one of the best years that I can ever remember for Huns. So next year, you're, you might be coming at the right time, Hank. So shall it be said, so shall it be done. Now, right before we go, tell everybody about your podcast and where they can find you on the various interwebs. Sure. Yeah, um, I've I've had a podcast now for uh, this is my third season, I guess. Uh, it's called the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast. It's available any place you find podcasts. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and all Google Play and all that good stuff. I have the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast page uh, as well. That's generally uh, there'll be some shenanigans posted on there occasionally of me and my friends having too much scotch after we get done hunting when we have pheasant feathers tucked behind our ears and we're jousting with them. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of pretty fun stuff on there as well as some really good pictures and different. Uh, I post all my podcast episodes on there, um, including the one I did with you here just a couple weeks ago. Also, the Birds, Booze and Butts podcast on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time. This has been super fun. and I. Can't wait to get out there next oh, year. Oh, man, it's going to be fun. Well, hopefully we, we cross paths sometime yet this winter. I know I'm going to be down in Arizona for um, a very long time, it seems like. I think I'm going to be down there for a month. So if uh, if you and uh, if you and Holly or just you or whoever uh, are down there, get a hold of me, and maybe we can get out and chase some Merns quail one day. Sounds like a plan. All right, bud. Thanks a lot for this. I appreciate it. Take care. Yep, you too. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and you can find me on social media at huntgathercook.com. You can find me on Instagram at huntgathercook, and I also run a Hunt Gather Cook Facebook group, which is a private group. Just tell me you heard about the group through the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I will let you in. I'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. I'll be interviewing Dwayne Elmore, one of the nation's foremost bobwhite quail experts, and we're going to talk about, yes, you guessed it, bobwhite quail. This is an especially excellent episode. I'm really proud to bring it to you. Can't wait for you to hear it. Take it easy. Again, I'm Hank, and I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. Bye.